0: Welcome to Byline Radio. This is What the Papers Don't Say, with me, Adrian Goldberg. Today, the former MP who says his warnings about Russian interference were ignored for years by the government. Ian Lucas helped bring the Cambridge Analytica scandal to light as a member of the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee. They were calling for an independent inquiry into overseas influence on UK elections, including the EU referendum, as far back as 2018 which were, of course, ignored. A little later on, we're going to be mining the rich seam of British government hypocrisy. After turning his back on Russian oil and gas because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, well, instead, Boris Johnson has been cozying up to Mohammed bin Salman, The Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, a regime which the other day executed 81 of its citizens and then executed three more on the day the British Prime Minister arrived. Here you go, Mr Johnson. I think it was a kind of welcoming present. As the world stands horrified at Russia's disgusting attack on a theatre in Mariupol that was being used as a bomb shelter, the Byline Times has been uncovering the full-scale of Saudi attacks on civilians in Yemen. Plus later, Alba Kapoor from the Runnymede Trust on the government's long-term vision for addressing racial inequality. As always, though, we want you to join us as well. If you've got a contribution to make to the debate, or if our discussion prompts a question that you want answered, just ask for a microphone and we'll let you in. I think you can only join in, though, if you're using your phone, and obviously not if you're listening to this again on the Byline Times podcast. But if you're listening on your phone, in the bottom left of your screen, there is a little microphone icon, and that will allow you to request access to a microphone. And we're keen to get as many comments and contributions and questions as we possibly can. The Byline Times, just to explain, in case you're new to all this, is funded by ordinary people like you. We're not backed by any oligarch heaven forbid or any wealthy proprietor or any corporate interest we don't stand for any one political party we stand for fairness and justice and as journalists for truth and for honesty to support us could i encourage you please to take out a subscription to the byline times if you do that you'll get a great monthly newspaper the byline times but you'll also be supporting byline tv the byline times podcast Byline Radio and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Let's talk first then to Ian Lucas, who's the MP, or was the MP, for Wrexham, Labour MP, from 2001 to 2019. Now an author. His book, Digital Gangsters, about the malign influence of digital campaigning and foreign interference on politics, is out now. Ian has written for the Byline Times about how he tried to blow the whistle on Russian meddling, but was ignored by successive conservative prime ministers. Ian, welcome along to Byline Radio. Good to have you with us. Hello there. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, when you were an MP, you were an MP going back a long way, 2001, more than two decades. When did you first become aware of a problem?
1: I think this particular problem really came to my attention around the time of the 2015 general election. And it really came in from two different directions. Firstly, I noticed from the House of Commons register of members' interests that a lot of con- conservative MPs had been receiving donations from uh, people with Russian-sounding names. And literally, I, I knew nothing more about, about that than 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 that. And secondly, I was also very aware in the 2015 campaign itself, the general election campaign, that for the first time, Facebook was having a a huge influence on the campaign itself in a way that I'd never experienced before. And I've, I've been fighting general elections since the 1980s, and it really profoundly changed the way the campaign worked.
0: Well, let's talk about those two things separately then. Firstly, this issue of Russian donations to the Conservative Party and to people who, in at least your case, were were fighting your seat. Where did that money come from and why did it set alarm bells ringing for you?
1: Well, I I was really puzzled uh, uh, by the election results. Like a lot of other people and and it 's always difficult to predict elections, but this one seemed particularly strange because most people if if people can it seems an awful long time ago, but it wasn 't that long ago uh, the, the, the you know, David Cameron secured an overall majority in that election, which was unexpected and, and I simply looked in uh, around my area it wasn 't actually my particular seat, but I noticed that the marginal seats. In North Wales, which was near to where I was, there were donations recorded in the House of Commons members' interest by someone called Alexander Temeco that I'd never heard of. And I then looked beyond North Wales and and saw that he'd also made lots of donations to other people in Wales and also across across England. And And I thought to myself, well, firstly, why is he doing this? Secondly, who is he? And thirdly, what are they doing with this money? So th- that was the first thread that really got me I- interested in this.
0: Well, Let's follow the line of Temerko then just for a moment. He's somebody who I know that our colleague at Byline Times, John Sweeney, has
1: written about. Yes, there's an excellent article by John for listeners if they're interested in following this up, which is very helpful.
0: Yeah, but well, briefly then, what's the story of Tamenko?
1: Well, he's from uh, Ukraine, uh, Russia, and I actually spoke to a conservative uh, recently who who was very adamant that he wasn't a Putin supporter. And the complexities of of the uh, the politics in Russia and Ukraine are such that I, you know, I, I cannot con- contradict that in, in any way. But he's he's someone who's interested in the energy sector in particular. And has been particularly active in northeast England, although, as I say, uh, his donations have have gone right across the UK. And he's also very recently, people may have noticed, been involved in a spat with Penny Mordaunt, uh, the Portsmouth Conservative MP, uh, because she wouldn't support a particular project that he was involved in locally. And he's someone who's been really active in Tory politics for uh, well over the last decade and and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of donations here. Um, the election that you're talking about, Ian? Where you thought well,
0: these results haven't quite gone the way that we expected, and that set you on to this quest, really? What what's been going on here? This was the 2015 election, yes, yes. and then in 2016, there's. Uh, there's a connection between Temerko and Boris Johnson, which has been reported by the journalist Catherine Belton and the author Catherine Belton, who has reported extensively on Putin and his connection to various oligarchs. And Temerko, it is said, uh, per- pers- persuaded, along with a group of Eastern European businessmen, Boris Johnson, to back Brexit in 2016.
1: Well of course brexit comes along in 2016 and, and I confess at that time had no, ex- no awareness of the, the way that social media campaigning was playing a massive part in that campaign and and what is essential for us to understand is that is, this is the social media campaigning is pretty much an unregulated world, certainly outside the period. Uh, immediately around elections on a day to day basis, this still holds true. You can spend as much as you like on social media campaigning, and very largely the content of it is something that is completely uncontrolled and unregulated, too. And as I discovered, as I went deeper and deeper into this, uh, it, it's very much the case that very often. People who are involved in elections won't know what's being said about them because a lot of these conversations and a lot of the information that's been sent around is actually in in private groups on Facebook. So you don't have access to them unless you're a member. But the groups can be, there's one particular example that I refer to in my book, had over 33,000 members, and my majority of the time was 1,700. So they're very, very from which you're excluded, even as a candidate, even though you're the person that's being talked about. And this is the position today. This is the position um, that needs to be addressed by legislation, but hasn't been. Yeah, I'll come to that. Let's just finish
0: on Tamirko. I mean, he's an interesting figure, isn't he? And as I say, I'd refer you to the article by John Sweeney. And there's there's no suggestion of wrongdoing on his part. He's supported traditionally a wing of the Conservative Party that has been anti-Brexit. And he's been has been anti-Putin. I think he called for the arming of Ukraine. So, you know, this isn't a black and white story. No, it is. Let's be clear about that. You're you're being very fair, as I expect, in my life. (laughs) Yeah, but at the same time, as you say, he's been involved in this row with his local MP, uh, Penny Mordens, in Portsmouth. But I suppose his story brings into focus the question of who is donating money to UK politics to political parties. How much are they investing? Where does their money come from? And what do they expect in return for their investments? His scale of donations have been quite considerable, haven't they? I mean, it denoted on, on one occasion £90,000 on just one occasion for a bronze bust of David Cameron. <laughs> at a I, 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 fund I raising bash.
1: One of the donations in Wales that I saw was for twenty thousand pounds at an auction for a, a an auction prize for uh, for a Conservative MP, and and you know that I I kind of that's beyond my completely beyond my experience as a member of Parliament. Uh, someone donating, you know, putting a, an auction prize in like that, uh, so it's, so it's a really enormous sums of money. In fact, I mean. The most I would spend, or, or ever, the most I ever spent on an election campaign. It was a very hard campaign where where, where twelve thousand pounds was spent, and and one of the things that we've been proud about our politics in, uh, until uh, recent times is that ordinary people could get go to the House of Commons um, because you didn't need to be a millionaire like in the United States, and and those days are gone, and we haven't really. Uh, been aware that 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 world was disappearing. Yes, and
0: Tamerco, it's reported by Catherine Belton, and if Tamerco wants to dispute that, he's welcome to get in touch with us and we will certainly give him a fair platform, suggested, for example, that he was behind the attempt to get rid of Theresa May and replace him with Boris Johnson. So we've got this curious world, to say the least, of donations from a former Russian citizen and a significant amount of money going in from this source we then have this other aspect that you've touched on which is the role of facebook and i mean this may or may not be linked to the russian state may not be linked to, to Merko we're not suggesting that for a moment but the, the involvement of facebook and the way in which facebook has sought to or people have sought to use facebook to interfere with uk politics that's the other feature really of this
1: uh, absolutely I see this as as two sides of the same coin. It's the way the politics is done now. And going back to the 2015 general election, where I said that something odd was happening, I had an opponent who who campaigned against me, largely on Facebook, in that election, which had a really profound effect uh, on the campaign. Because, for example, he was someone who'd appeared six months before the general election. And by the time of that election, The constituents who are speaking to me knew his name on the doorstep, which was not something I've ever experienced before. And he is now running a social media promotion campaign, basically uh, putting forward and promoting individuals on social media based in Panama, would you believe? I kid you not. Uh, uh, And uh, I I found that he had a huge impact locally through Facebook And we see uh, now, because under pressure, Facebook has has, uh, itself begun to publish the amount that is spent on political adverts. And we can say from information from Facebook that Andy Street, who's the West Midlands mayor, since November of 2018, which is when the system was introduced, has spent £104,000 on Facebook advertising. In, so, in that in the period from November 2018. And uh, Ben Houchin, the Tees Mayor, who's a, a, a conservative poster boy, really, has also spent £69,000 just on Facebook since November 2019. That's information from Facebook itself, which is available on their uh, uh, ad service. So, we know that they are spending a huge amount of money um, on social media advertising
0: and how does this fit into the rules around spending on elections because there are quite strict rules whether they're always observed or not to another matter but there well, the are strict, quite strict rules aren't there about how much this, you can this, spend on electioneering yeah
1: this is crucial to understand the strict rules that we all know about off only for what's called the short election period, which is for, you know, the six weeks maximum period before a general election. So on a day-to-day basis, for example, now, at the moment, when there's no formal national election, the spend is unlimited. And it, 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 what is happening now is that these are being used, uh, these unlimited spending limits uh, are being used to allow endless campaigning. And the reason why we see Boris Johnson day in and day out in high-vis jackets and Liz Truss with her fur hats going out to uh, Eastern Europe is because these are forming images that are being circulated to, to voters on a day-to-day basis. Every day this is being spent. So that the, the limits that, that we're used to uh, just don't apply in, in the way that that uh, we have experienced in the past. We ha- used to have a short campaign. You know, I, I, I've been a candidate since the 1990s and a long campaign. Now, campaigning is constant, but regulation is completely inadequate because regulation, the electoral regulation that we're talking about, large, largely... That predates the existence of Facebook, which was only created, remember, in 2004. So our electoral law is completely unfit for purpose at the moment. And this has been said both by the Electoral Commission and by the Information Commissioner repeatedly since uh, 2017, 2018, which is when I really began to get into uh, all these issues in detail. But the government has done nothing about it. And even today, when it's publishing the online safety bill, it's really excluding the the um, the role of elections in the approach that it's taking.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that then. And is there anything in the online safety bill that would address this sort of out of term, out of election period spending via social media?
1: No, there isn't. And uh, well, it's being published virtually as as we speak, yeah. but, but certainly in draft form, it didn't include that. In fact, we had an elections bill, ironically, uh, which was introduced by the by the Conservative government, which is hugely controversial and, and may well run into the sand because of opposition in the House of Lords. The the elections bill actually tries to restrict the role and limit the powers of the Electoral Commission, which is exactly the opposite of what it should be doing, and it does very, very little. It, it does do one thing about adding imprints on social media adverts, which is, which is uh, welcome, but is completely inadequate. But this, this issue about spending limits is not, not addressed at all interesting stuff and i'll come back to you in just a moment
0: just to say hello to people if you have just tuned in my name's adrian goldberg and you're listening to byline radio hello to daryl hello to pat hello to andy hello to julie hello to gas neweth hello to kate hello to dr emma hello to heather hello to byron hello to martin thank you very much indeed for listening in and if you do want to join in by the way if you're listening on your phone in the bottom left hand corner you will see a little microphone icon and if if you've got a sensible comment to make, something to add perhaps to what Ian has said, or a question that we want to ask him, by all means do get in touch because we love welcoming the world to byline radio. This is a global phenomenon and people can listen to this again and may well be listening to this again on catch up on the byline times podcast but if you're listening live now on byline radio this is your chance to get on air to ask a question to make a contribution so do take advantage of it this is coming to you from the byline times the byline times report without fear or favor we have no corporate backers we rely entirely on people like you to keep us going We have a brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. If you subscribe to that, you're helping to support this radio station. You're helping to support The Byline Times podcast and Byline TV, as well as our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. A little later on, we're going to be talking about the uh, – just thinking really about this awful attack – by Russia on the theatre in Mariupol in Ukraine. But comparing the coverage of that, and that is an appalling and disgusting attack on civilians, no question about that. We're not seeking to excuse or diminish that in any way. But contrasting the coverage of that with civilian deaths in Yemen, which have been rained down upon it by Saudi Arabia, the country that Boris Johnson was visiting yesterday because he no longer wants to deal with the repugnant Russian regime. Seems he's quite happy to deal with the repugnant Saudi Arabian regime. And we'll also be talking as well a little bit later about the government's attempt to tackle racial disparities. That's what they call them, racial disparities. Some of us might just call them racial inequalities. So all that to come. And as I say, if you do want to join in, if you want to make a contribution, if you if something hasn't been said, or you think you've just got an insight to offer, or if there's a question you want to ask, just tap the little microphone icon in the left-hand corner, and feel free to join in. Ian Lucas is with us. Ian was the MP for Wrexham between 2001 to 2019. His book, Digital Gangsters, about the malign influence of digital campaigning and foreign interference on politics, is out now. Now, Ian, uh, you did try, as a member of the DCMS Select Committee, that's the Culture, Media and Support Select Committee, You did try to blow the whistle on potential interference in UK elections as far back as
1: 2018. Is that right? That's right. I mean, the first line of questioning that I really uh, uh, used with Facebook in February of 2018 was about overseas interference, because uh, I confess that I'm a lawyer by background and it seemed to me that th- there seemed to be a big hole in the law in that if if, if um, you could pay for this type of social media advertising from abroad, how would we know about it? And, and how could we stop foreign interference in our elections, which was a pretty fundamental tenet of our democracy? And I first asked about that in February of 2018. And that was a Facebook representative. And what was incredible to me at the time was that he pretended to have never heard of that issue ever being discussed before. And remember, this is after the Brexit referendum in 2016. And uh, after the huge controversy in the United States uh, that led to the Mueller commission producing its report and and the the accepted interference by Russia in the US presidential election in 2016. And I thought it was incredible that Facebook in 2018 was saying to me that they had never thought about the issue of overseas interference in elections in the UK.
0: And Facebook, of course, had scraped data or allowed to have data scraped from millions of users, which was then sold to a company called Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica then used that in in that presidential election campaign to target Facebook users in support of both President Trump, as he became, and Senator Ted Cruz as well. So it was disingenuous, to say the least,
1: for Facebook. Well, I'm being kind, Adrian, because actually what happened was that in this same session in February of 2018, uh, Facebook didn't tell us in that session, even though we specifically raised Cambridge Analytica in the session, that uh, of this scraping that had taken place at the end of 2015 and the fact that they had actually... them. Uh, Taken uh, sanctioned in an individual for carrying out that scraping. That's their, uh, that's the way that they approach it. So they didn't even refer or highlight this. And it was a couple of months later, about six weeks later, I think, that Chris Wiley blew the whistle and we first discovered about the, the detail of the scraping that had taken place. Uh, in 2015, and first discovered the detail of that, even though there had actually been a an earlier newspaper article about it. So Facebook were very, very w- were highly disingenuous in, in this, that session in in 2018. And when I first started on that session, you know, I, I thought Facebook was a good thing. I, I all of my perception of Facebook today is from my own experience of the way that they have approached me, the committee we were serving, and Parliament, and and the way that really their behaviour has been an absolute disgrace.
0: And, of course, that... Warning or that call for more investigation that the DCMS select committee raised in 2018 was ignored. It should be said was ignored not by Boris Johnson but by Theresa May, who was then Prime
1: Minister. But then well, the... ignored by Boris Johnson because he was the Foreign Secretary at the time. And and what's really interesting about Boris Johnson is that there's also a uh, a session a conversation that he had with Lavrov. Uh, I think it was December 2017 where Boris Johnson suggests overseas interference in the Brexit referendum. And if people look at my uh, Twitter feed, they'll see that is actually that conversation is is on there. Uh, And uh, Johnson introduced this very weird distinction where the government was suggesting that overseas interference had taken place from Russia, but it was unsuccessful. And it had always been unsuccessful. And I, I asked another cabinet minister who was DCMS, uh, Jeremy Wright, about that in detail in a session, because I think it's a completely ridiculous. Uh, distinction to make. I mean, the important issue here is that somebody's trying to interfere in our democracy. It's not whether it's been successful or or unsuccessful.
0: Yeah, and just so people know, and Ian, who may not be up to speed on this, uh, Lavrov is Sergei Lavrov. He's the Russian foreign minister. And as you say, there was a press conference in December 2017 when Boris Johnson has raised this question. He suggested that attempts by Russia to interfere in the Brexit referendum had been... Unsuccessful, but there was no
1: denial that attempts had taken place. Well, that, that, that's correct. And what's what's incredible is that uh, the the government then refused to investigate further. They, you know, yeah,
0: I mean it's a, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Sorry to jump in there, Ian, but it, it's a oh, weird thing, isn't it, to say that attempts at interference have been unsuccessful. How can you know that? if you haven't traced back what those attempts were and what impact they may have had on the outcome? How can you be conclusive without doing the investigation? And I raised the point yesterday, and I feel very passionately about this, that there are people who supported Brexit who would regard themselves as patriots. Uh, um, there are plenty of people who who are Remainers who would regard themselves as patriots, not nationalists, you know, not not head right-wingers, but certainly people who supported Brexit, who would regard themselves as patriots, people who believe very deeply that the United Kingdom should be a sovereign nation. Now, you can agree or disagree with that, or the degree of sovereignty that we really have or that we ought to have, but nevertheless, this is a position that many people sincerely hold, and these are people who are without malice and who mean no harm to anyone, if you know what I mean. I'm trying to distinguish them from sort of head-banging right-wingers. <laughs> and, and, and my point is, Ian, that those people who would regard themselves as patriots, surely, even, this is, as you say, it's not about how the Brexit result went or the referendum result went. It's about whether foreign powers are trying to tell British people how to vote and what to do—that yeah. should concern every citizen of this
1: country, surely. Well, it, it, it concerned Boris Johnson when he raised it with Sergei Lavrov, the the Russian Foreign Affairs Minister. Yeah, and let's be clear on this: I was uh, when I was having the conversation in February of, of 2018 at the start of this with, with, with Facebook. Um, the, the position was that I had actually I voted for Article 50. As, uh, you know, I'm a i was a Remainer. I campaigned for Remain. Uh, uh, but but my constituents voted 59 uh, to 41 in favour of Brexit, and when the vote took place at the beginning of 2017, I felt obligated to to take take account of what they had said, and I voted for Article 50 uh, at the beginning of 2017, and and the the fact of the unlawful interference. Uh, the unlawful activity of the Vote Leave campaign didn't become, um, it wasn't actually found until July of 2018. So that huge steps had been taken before we knew that there had been a breaking of um, spending limits and so on in the the referendum. So so the the whole, uh, uh, many of these questions were not investigated. And the primary recommendation that the committee on which I served was making was, let's have an investigation into this. We didn't say, you know, everything needs to be overturned. We need to overturn Brexit or anything like that. We were simply saying, let's have an independent investigation into interference in our democracy, just as the Mueller commission had taken, had in the United States. And to this day, we have never investigated this. And we've never looked. There's a stone there that we haven't lifted. Yes, indeed. And just when
0: you when you said you voted for Article 50, that was the article of the European Union treaty that effectively triggers UK withdrawal. So you know this was not about grizzling about the result, but this was about saying our foreign powers, whether they lead to a result. I like or not, are foreign powers seeking to interfere with UK elections? And I would say that should concern every man, woman and child in this country, whatever their political beliefs. But I just pressed the trigger of patriotism because there are people who would wrap themselves in the flag, call themselves patriots, some of whom followed that patriotism through by voting for Brexit. Well, if you really care about your country should you not care that a foreign power may have sought to influence our elections? I agree completely. 2019, we've got the Russia report finally released, haven't we, or was it 2020?
1: I no, it wasn't released in 2019. It was, in fact, I re- the last interview I did as an MP was in November of 2019, just before the uh, December 2019 election when Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and the, the Vote Leave government were stopping the publication of the uh, uh, Intelligence and Security Committee of the House of Commons report on uh, Russian interference. And I think it it certainly wasn't released until at least 2020. So, no,
0: 20, and heavily redacted, of course. Uh, and absolutely. Again, and and the, again, the committee, uh, the, committee, the committee says that this question... It's like government turned its back on this question. Well, it, draw, it, it says they, government didn't want to in-
1: investigate. They agree completely with, with what I've been saying for a very considerable period through 2019 and 2018. Uh, that basically we needed to look into this, we needed to investigate it, and we needed to highlight it. And and um, for the reasons that you've just outlined, uh, uh, if we believe in in. Our, our own freedom to determine our own elections without interference, then we sh- every patriot and every Democrat should be, should be concerned about this fact of interference and how it was happening.
0: Ian, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. There's a brilliant article you've written to this effect at byline But as a radio man, I always love to draw out the strands and the arguments, and it's been brilliant to hear you making the points so clearly. And your book is out now, Digital Gangsters, which goes into much of this territory. Really appreciate your time. Feel free to stay on in if you want to, or go if you have to go. But whatever, it's been it's been great to, to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you
1: very much. I've very much enjoyed the conversation. It's
0: been really really interesting isn't it and i want that to be the watchword of byline radio conversation not confrontation i know that some people try to create what i would regard as clickbait radio making outrageous comments getting people then to get angry riled up and to to comment on them get the phones ringing well okay that's a way of radio and i've worked in radio for a long time and I I wouldn't say that I'm entirely not guilty as charged of doing that sometimes in my career but here we are in this space it is about shedding light not heat It is about understanding things reporting honestly and accurately but I think if you've got a, a point to make if you want to comment on what Ian has said and I found that absolutely fascinating feel free to join in you can just request if you're listening on your phone anyway request a comment on the bottom left-hand corner of your phone. That's where the microphone is. You can request access. And if you've got something to say, something intelligent to add, or just a question to ask, we'd be welcome to take it wherever you're listening to this around the world. And if you're listening on the Byline Times podcast, well, obviously, it's not live, so we can't offer you that facility. Just a reminder, if you do want to do that, to join us live Monday to Friday at noon on Twitter spaces, at Byline Radio. We're going to talk in a moment about attacks on civilians in Yemen as well. Just a reminder, though, to support our work, if you possibly can, if you can afford it, and I know times are hard, by taking out a subscription to the Byline Times, our monthly newspaper. You'll get details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now, mainstream media have quite rightly reported on the theatre in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol, which came under attack from Russian forces, despite being used as a shelter by civilians, including children. The assault provoked US President Joe Biden to accuse President Putin of being a war criminal. No dispute about that here. But what about Saudi Arabia, the country that both the US and the UK have been exhorting to increase oil production to make up for the loss of Russian supplies? Well, data collected by the pressure group Action on Armed Violence reveals that almost 11,000 civilian casualties have been caused by the Saudi led coalition use of explosive weapons since its military intervention began in 2015. Let's get more now from. Emily Griffith from Action on Armed Violence. Uh, I'll say that again. Let's get more now from Emily Griffith from Action on Armed Violence. Hello, Emily. How are you doing?
2: Hi, Adrian. Hi, everyone listening. Thanks very much for having me.
0: I think this is such an important story, Emily, because... Quite rightly, and I said earlier, I don't want to diminish the awfulness of that attack on the theatre in Mariupol. And I know that you wouldn't seek to diminish that either. That is appalling. I personally think that is a war crime. And it's certainly not the first one that I would suggest President Putin and Russian forces have been responsible for in Ukraine, which is an Mm -hmm. appalling invasion and is wrong, wrong, wrong. So we're not we're not trying to in any way downplay what's happening in Russia by talking about this.
2: No, absolutely not. I mean, and the, the theater bombing is sort of just, uh, it's tragically very in line with the tactics that we've seen Putin's forces uh, use in Ukraine since the invasion began. I mean, thinking of the bombing of the maternity hospital last week in Mariupol. Um, so these are, yeah, war crimes to be sure. And uh, it, one thing that at AOAV we can do is we can evidence with data um, the way that uh, Russian explosive weapon use has uh, harmed civilians in in Ukraine since the invasion began, since 2014, uh, and in Yemen by the Saudi-led coalition. And that's what this article seeks to do.
0: Take us back then to 2015. How does the Saudi government and its supporters in other Gulf countries become involved in Yemen? What is the, the cause? What is the argument? Uh,
2: sure. Well, we, you know, our data shows that so over the last decade, um, the Saudi-led coalition are re- responsible for nearly 11,000 civilian deaths and injuries from their use of explosive weapons uh, in Yemen. And this has been part of their uh, movement against the, uh, the Houthi rebels, um, but we see that they sort of indiscriminately bomb uh, civilian infrastructure, populated areas, towns, villages, cities. Um, they rank third uh, in the world's leading state perpetrators of civilian casualties from explosive weapon use, um, second only to Assad's forces in Syria uh, and then an, an unknown categorization, categorization of uh, state perpetrators.
0: And, of course, the UK and the US have been courting Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, precisely because of the invasion of Ukraine. You know, where Russian oil and gas is now off limits or as off limits as, as we can afford for it to be, given mm. the fact that we are addicted to oil and gas and fossil fuels in the West. So we look for new sources. And then we go to this country, which is responsible for crimes... Of a similar scale, of a similar degree, of a similar nature to Absolutely. that of the despot in Russia that that we're seeking to distance ourselves from.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I think it's very important to uh, evidence with data the sort of the the serious contradiction and double standard that's at play. Um, you know, yesterday, Liz Tress on Sky News said that uh, you know although she disagrees with the po- a lot of the policies of Saudi Arabia. We need to face the reality that uh, Vladimir Putin is, a, is an aggressor who is, you know, quote, wantonly destroying a sovereign neighboring country. Uh, and so they're seeking ties with, with other countries as a source for oil and gas. Um, and this is true of, of Putin and in his invasion of the Ukraine. But that reality is, is very much the same, if not worse, in Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen um, we've recorded 15,905 civilian casualties from explosive weapon use in Yemen, and our database shows that the Saudi-led coalition has caused 68% of those civilian casualties through their use of explosive weapons, primarily airstrikes. Um, 85% of uh, civilian casualties caused by Saudi strikes were on populated areas. Um, so it's it's the same the same offences occurring by Russian forces in Ukraine are taking place in Yemen by the Saudi-led coalition.
0: Yes, and for people who don't understand the background to this, it is quite a messy and complicated evolution to war. But, and, And I'm glossing here, and feel free to correct me or amend what I'm going to say, but the Houthis are primarily a group of Shia Muslims and Saudi Arabia is Sunni Muslim and the coalition of states attacking the Houthis in Yemen are Sunni like Saudi Arabia. So I realise, I, I, I recognise that it's it's too simplistic to call it as a Sunni versus Shia conflict. It isn't as simple as that. There is more history and background to it than that. But very broadly, that's how the division has now fallen.
2: Yes. And, and I think that can be uh, something to point to in the targeting of civilian infrastructure, uh with a a conflict that is based in in religious and ethnic differences like that uh civilians are are often caught up in the crossfire of such a conflict and targeted
0: beyond cataloguing it and clearly that's a very valuable and important thing to do emily I, i mean does that research go anywhere i've seen The write-up on bylinetimes.com, and it's a really powerful piece of data collection, even though ultimately we we are talking about human lives. When we talk about civilian casualties, we are talking about human lives. You can catalogue it. And you can draw attention to the hypocrisy, for example, of Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, who's described Russia as a country wantonly destroying a neighbouring sovereign nation, which is exactly what Saudi Arabia is doing. Where else does this go? Is this just about flying the flag for this story and saying, look, this is really important. People are dying here, innocent civilians.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a a very valuable role that the data plays. But we also uh, feed our data into uh, other civil society organizations uh, and the United Nations. And you know, the in its ideal form, that data is used to create uh, policy around disarmament initiatives uh, that curb the use of explosive weapons in in populated areas. Um, And then for this data article specifically, I I hope that it contributes to a a conversation about sort of a widespread double standard that we're seeing uh, in the political media and public response to the loss of civilian life and limb from war when it occurs uh, in Ukraine, in a European country, compared to when it happens in Yemen.
0: Yeah, interesting comments by the Labour leader, Keir Starmer. He said that going cap in hand from dictator to dictator is not Mm. an energy strategy. Saying we're not going to rely on Russia and then going to Saudi Arabia is not an energy strategy.
2: Certainly
0: not. Yeah, Emily, great to speak to you. Thank you. That's Emily Griffith. Emily is from Action on Armed Violence. If you want to see the full report, go to the website bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. We'll be on air till about one o'clock. If you do want to join in, by all means, request access to the microphone in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen, if you're listening anyway on a mobile phone. Uh, Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, by the way, but I don't think this works as an interactive tool If you're on a laptop or on a PC, I think you can only join in on the phone as far as I'm concerned. And clearly, if you're listening back to the catch-up on the podcast, then you can't join in at all. But, you know, if you do want to contact me, by the way, I've got an email address that you can get in touch. Goldbergradio at gmail.com. That's goldbergradio at gmail.com. Or you can always direct message me at the Byline Radio Twitter handle. That's at Byline Radio Last year, the government published a widely criticised and frequently ridiculed investigation into racial inequality. The Sewell report pretty much rejected the idea of institutional racism as an explanation for why some ethnic minority groups fare worse than others. That was a finding that flew in the face of the lived experience of many people from minority backgrounds. Now ministers have set out their own response to the Sewell report their own report is called Inclusive Britain. Now it does acknowledge the existence of racism but says there are other factors too. Let's get more now with Alba Kapoor. Albert is the senior policy officer at the Runnymede Trust, one of the UK's leading think tanks on race and racism. Alba, hello, welcome to Byline Radio. How are you doing?
3: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: And I know you've been listening for a good old time as well, so thank you very much indeed for your for your patience. It's great to talk to you.
3: Yeah, it's great to be here. It's, it's been a really, really good show so far. So really interesting to listen. And the Sewell report
0: was embraced by Boris Johnson. Uh, people from minority ethnic backgrounds, I'd say almost to a man and a woman who I spoke to, simply thought it was nonsense. It just did not tell the story of that experience. But that was all kicked off by black lives matter wasn't it there was you know the the terrible killing of george floyd the black lives matter protests and underpinning many of those protests was an understanding or a belief in institutional racism so that's where this sequence of reports all comes from
3: yeah sorry Sorry, yeah go on no, sorry. I've just you've just cut out, um, but I can. I think if you can hear me, I'll, I'll just yeah. No, absolutely. As you say, um, this report, the Inclusive Britain report, comes two years after George, uh, the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests, and um, also two years after the COVID nineteen crisis, which really exposed the devastating realities of of racism in our society and racial disparities, which really was a matter of life and death during a crisis that impacted everyone. We noticed that there were certain communities, communities already dealing with lots of different stresses and difficulties in our society that were, were having to bear the brunt of this crisis much more. And what this report is, is sort of the culmination of the government's work in, the, in this area. And we welcome any measure to address racial disparities in our society. So it's a first step. It absolutely is. But it does not go anywhere near enough in addressing the deep injustices uh, facing black and ethnic minority groups in our society.
0: Where does it diverge from Sewell in a way that you think is positive?
3: So it it clearly wants to distance itself from the widely discredited... Your report. So there is not a regurgitation of the same rhetoric that we saw uh, last March from, from a report that did a number of really damaging things for ethnic minority communities. Firstly, diminished the realities of institutional racism in our society. Secondly, uh, it reduced a lot of the key disparities that we notice in housing and education, for example, to issues of culture and behaviour. Um, and thirdly, it didn't. It didn't offer a sort of space to come together for race equality organisations, for black and ethnic minority groups to openly discuss the evidence that we know to be true of the extent of racial disparities. So so this government response doesn't regurgitate that language in in quite the same way, um, which which we're pleased to see. But it also, as I said, doesn't, doesn't really go far enough at all in beginning to address the extent of the injustices facing black and ethnic minority communities. Um, a lot of the language in this report, a lot of the recommendations in the action plan is very much um, sort of about frameworks and commissions rather than targets and actions. One of the things that I was just looking at was um, one of the recommendations on maternity deaths, for example. And obviously we know that there is this sort of Uh, alarming disproportionality at maternity deaths for black and ethnic minority women. Um, But instead of really providing a target, which is what we've pushed for, to reduce this disproportionality, the government have have promised instead to, and I quote, consider evidence-based interventions. This is not what we need. There needs to be urgency behind actions like this. So um, we're quite clear that even the recommendations that have been offered they're sort of duct tape over an outstanding and deep-rooted issue.
0: One of the recommendations will that, that, that might have got the kind of so-called culture warriors rattled and may mm. yet is the suggestion that by 2024, a panel of historians and school leaders will help to draw up a model curriculum To help pupils understand the intertwined nature of British and global history. Now, that could be taken as a code for Britain being honest about its past. When people like the National Trust seek to be honest about Britain's past, they're often descended upon Mm -hmm. by an avalanche of abuse but it seems to me that this provision does open up the prospect of a more honest conversation about british history for good but particularly for ill
3: yeah i mean you've touched on something really important there which is again this vague language that isn't very clear that's sort of regurgitated throughout this report so here we have a potentially transformative uh recognition from the government in terms of issues around diversifying the history curriculum. Um, But it's not clear what they're really getting at. And I think you're really right to put it in sort of a broader context, which is a context not only of the sustained and persistent attack against institutions, organisations and people who have been fighting to diversify the curriculum for Britain to have an honest and profound and deep conversation about what colonialism was, what impact it has on our society, and what needs to be done now. Um, and then also the continuing work that's being done uh, by the government to push, push against conversations around race in the classroom. So what I'm thinking really about is this introduction of the new impartiality guidance that came out um, over the last few weeks and which basically made it much harder for teachers to have conversations in schools about uh, Black Lives Matter and racism. And so um, this is all happening in tandem with one another. So what we need to do when we read these recommendations, which are a welcome first step to, to opening up the possibilities for conversations around diversifying curriculum is also be aware of that broader context, the context which really shows that the government have not been progressive on this conversation so far. They've not been willing to listen and, in fact, have have issued some quite damaging statements and guidance in this area in the past.
0: Just want to finish by focusing a little bit on language, Albert, because, Mm -hmm. as you say, this is Kind of a rather vague document, and we'll have to wait and see what it actually means in practice. It's been, it was launched by Michael Gove from his leveling up department. Two aspects of language really intrigue me one is Mm -hmm. the reference to racial disparities. And I questioned this earlier. Are we seeing some linguistic shape-shifting going on here? When we talk about racial disparities, is what we're really talking about racial inequality, but an inequality that dare not speak its name, Mm. and also the suggestion that across government departments the phrase BAME, black and minority ethnic, Mm -hmm. might be replaced. What, What are your thoughts on that?
3: The, the way in which language is a central feature of this discussion, I think, is actually quite... It, it, it makes quite clear a fear about addressing the real underlying issues. So that the government have focused so much energy on a discussion about how to refer to ethnic minority communities in our society. is in, in and of itself indicative of a government not quite willing yet to do the meaningful work to address structural and institutional racism. Um, So absolutely, I think language has a really important role to play in this conversation, um, but often has been focused upon too much um, as a way of not really engaging with the other key issues. And I just wanted, you you brought up levelling up, and I think it's just important to say say this, which is that the government have touted this as part of their levelling up agenda. But let's not forget, black and ethnic minority communities have had almost no role to play so far in the levelling up agenda. So the 10% of local authorities with the highest concentration of black African and Caribbean communities uh, received less levelling up funding than the 10% of of local authorities with the lowest concentration. So basically what we're seeing here is that communities of black and ethnic minority populations are not getting Uh, government funding when other communities are, despite the fact that they often live in very deprived areas and are in urgent need of of government support. Um, And so this is, I think, again, another part of this broader context that needs to be kind of fit into the picture here, which is that this is not part of the broader agenda so far around levelling up that has seen the inclusion of black and ethnic minority groups. In fact, actually, some of the levelling up rhetoric has been really damaging for black and ethnic minority groups. And what we're what we're hoping from here is a sort of step change from this government to try and include black and ethnic minority people in that agenda because they've been left out so far. And that's a real shame.
0: Fascinating insights. Thank you for your time today. That's uh, Albert. Thank you very much. Really good to speak to you. Senior policy officer at the Runnymede Trust, one of the UK's leading race and racism think tanks. As I say, the point really of Byline Radio is to shed light and not heat. This is not clickbait journalism. This is not about getting a row on air. This is about having a conversation, not a confrontation. And thank you so much for listening, whether you're listening live on Byline Radio or whether you're listening via the catch-up on the Byline Times podcast. Just to encourage you once again, if you can, to support the Byline Times by taking out a subscription or a membership, go to bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And I know that those of you who do listen to this show are our biggest supporters. So if you can, please spread the word on social media, not just on Twitter, but on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on TikTok, wherever you live on social media, and let other people know about what I hope is the most Intelligent but accessible hour of radio that you will hear today. Thanks so much as well to my guest today, to Alba Mc- uh, Kapoor from the Runnymede Trust, from Emily Griffith from Action on Armed Violence, and to Ian Lucas as well. See you all again tomorrow. We're here Monday to Friday at noon via Twitter Spaces at Byline Radio and later on via the Byline Times podcast if you didn't catch it live.
1: Thanks all very much indeed. See you tomorrow. Cheers.